0: Father, I pray um, just specifically today that we will find freedom in Christ, that we will experience uh, the true gospel and be able to hold fast to it. Be able to see through all of the things that are plaguing against the church today. And be able to be rooted deep in Christ and the conviction that he alone saves. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I was thinking through um, just this passage, there's something this week that really struck me. It's always grossed me out, but especially after reading this, and it was my dog and how she just loves to eat grass. It's so gross to me. Like, it it always has been, but there was something this week where I'm like, why do you do that? You have, I mean, it looks maybe generally good food, the brown little pellets um, that we feed dogs, but also I give her like the butts of the banana that I hate. I give her frozen blueberries, all these treats. But still, she just, like, continues to eat grass. We had to take her to the doctor one time because she had pancreatitis because he was like, yeah, I think she probably ate something dead outside. I'm like, why do you do that? You're not a goat. (laughs) You're a dog. You, you you, You pretend as if, like, we just don't treat you well at all, like, We love you, we care for you, but why are you acting like something that you're not? Why are you eating grass? And I just, that hit me this week as I was reading through this because what Paul is like saying to the church, he's like, why then, if you have been made free, why do you keep embracing things that put you in bondage? Why do you keep embracing these things that make you look like goats? You're not goats. You're not Jesus and plus. You're Jesus alone, people. And he's addressing the church specifically because he's wanting to expose what these false teachings are that have plagued the church. And there's a lot of them. And I want to mimic essentially what he is doing with what is plaguing us today as well. And here's the deal. When I'm going to say things like false teaching or different theologies, different gospels, it's all generally kind of what I mean as the same thing. And ultimately here it is. It's to say that we can have peace with God and living life to the fullest with Jesus and something else. That's what false teaching is. So I see three things really that Paul is challenging us as the church with this passage that I've, I've framed into questions, and they're, and they're right here. Will we embrace or flee? Will we embrace or will we flee from bad theology? Will we stand firm in Jesus or will we fall in the wind? And lastly, will we live as if Jesus rules in eternity is real? So this first question, will we embrace or flee from bad theology um, this connecting more that he gives there, therefore. What he's, he's saying is he's connecting these last five verses where he's talked about, you are full in Christ. You don't lack anything. Don't give in to this mess. Don't let it hold you captive. Don't look exactly like the world. And here's specifically the context of what the, this church was going through a long time ago. There were three things really that were plaguing the church. One was legalism. Okay, so when he talks about how in uh, verse 16, he's like, don't, don't let anyone pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink with regard to a festival, new moon, Sabbath. What, what he's saying there specifically is that these things, they're just shadows. They're just shadows that we're pointing to someone else. Matthew 15, 16 through 20. Do you, so this is Jesus talking. He says, do you still lack understanding, he asked. Don't you realize that whatever goes into the mouth and passes into the stomach is eliminated? But what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart, and that's what defiles a person. So he's saying here, like, you've got it all wrong. You're you're treating all of these, like, created things. You're putting them in a place that doesn't belong there. These are good things that God has given you. Those aren't the things that defile you. No, it's all this mess in here. That defiles you. It's all these things within your heart. He's like, you're trying to to fix this external without looking inwardly. He also talks about this thing called the Sabbath. And basically the whole idea of the Sabbath from the very beginning of time was this idea that we need rest. We aren't robots. (laughs) We can't work all the time. We need to just breathe and rest and remember that our identity is not in what we do but who we are. And, they, and all of the, the teachers of the law back in the day, they had made all of these rules that were fencing and saying, like, you have to do all these things to be able to do Sabbath. Well, I'm like, wait a minute, I thought I was just supposed to rest from those things. And Jesus is saying, again, you have this wrong. Mark 2, 27 through 28. He said to him, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. Guys, that was about me, Jesus is saying, the Sabbath was about me. You've missed this. You're imposing p- things on people that they can't hold. They're, there's a yoke that they have now that they can't even carry. So legalism had plagued the church. The other thing was polytheism. So there were it was Jesus plus all of these other gods, right? There's, Jesus was just generally kind of another god that people were worshiping. That's why when he's talking about worship of Of angels, we were putting Jesus in this kind of same category as just another spiritual being that that we were to worship. He's like, no. No, Jesus is above all of those things. And the last one is, is asceticism. And basically, what that means is just abstaining really from everything separate from the world. The material is bad, all created things are bad. And Paul is just shredding these in verse 23. He says, such regulations, they indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. They actually don't do anything to fix what's really wrong with you. And one illustration I was just thinking through... um, is as, as I grew up, and I feel like maybe a lot of us did, um, is really well-meaning people. Let me wrong. I think they love Jesus, but it was this culture of like purity, this purity culture that was created, where the whole idea behind it, where it was like, you know, if we just abstain, if we give you like these rules, if we if you do these things, these like ten steps to living sexually pure, or if you're a husband, five steps to being a better husband, there were just all of these things that were like given to us. But here's the thing, they actually ended up being more damning than life-changing. They didn't change the the sexual avalanche that is in our world and within the people of God. I think it came out of a good place, but, but really what Jesus is saying is, no, there is evil within your heart that needs to be dealt with. And I kid you not, like, I would hear this, like, holding hands leads to, you know, fill in the blank. <laughs> I'm just like, that That didn't, it was a scared straight program, but it just created a barrier like me where I just generally want to rebel across it. It didn't do anything to, like, fix what was wrong in here. And instead of this rude issue being attacked, this is what I wish I heard was that, You're human. This isn't abnormal. All of us have fallen. You can't be pure on your own. You can't do it. But there's a hope in that. Because the law wasn't even pointing to you. It was pointing to someone beyond you. The law was saying, yeah, you can't do this. So Christ did it. All of the world, the crushing weight that was put on him, he fully obeyed God. So the law wasn't even pointing at you because we couldn't do it. I mean, that's what I wish I had heard is that I can't carry this. I'm going to mess up. But Christ is saying, I know you will. That's why I did it for you in your place, and I've given you victory over it. Now follow me. Bad theology hurts people. And the Colossians were no exception to this. They were lambasted by bad teaching that was crippling them. And I see it today. It's plagued the Western church. And really I want to give just five categories, five types of Christianity. This is from Brett McCracken. He has um, written a ton of books. But these are really helpful categories, I think. That have shown some of the theology that isn't Jesus only. That has plagued and it's, it's become, this what syncretistic means. It means that we don't actually look different than the world. So the first one is consumeristic. I think all, yeah, all five of them are up there. So I'm just going to go through these one through one. And I also want to do what Paul did to give why they hurt people. So consumeristic, this is the church shopping faith. It's where the believer looks for a perfect church like a perfect pair of jeans. (laughs) It's deeply oriented around comfort. Faith is great as long as it doesn't add too much to my life or subtract from my life. As long as it benefits me, but with very few costs. As long as it doesn't impede on my autonomy and make me change my uniqueness about me. My true self. But here's the lie. This is where it hurts. God is not after giving you everything you want. Because what you want, listen, what you want is what actually doesn't give you life to the fullest. It's not found in those things that you think it's found in him because Christ would say all of creation was about him. And so until you recognize that and follow him, realizing that your heart beats for him, it's not you're not going to find it in that. But it's plagued the church, the consumeristic church. The second one is pragmatic. And this is the whatever it takes mentality. And it, it birthed out of this I think a pure desire to want to bring in as many people as possible. But it's the type of faith that it birthed this kind of seeker-sensitive movement, this kind of mega-church movement, hipster Christianity, like all of these things that have flown out of Pragmatic. And here's the deal. It's highly attuned to felt needs. It's very PR-minded. Um, it's it's outward-oriented, do whatever it takes to fill the pews. Generally hyper-positive um, teachings. So this is not a generally hyper-positive teaching <laughs> that you're getting today. Um, it, theirs is non-controversial. Mine's going to be very controversial. Um, it's self-empowering. Yeah, you are made in the image of God, but this isn't about you. Like, so this is, just, this is no different really than like an Amway conference. Or a motivational speaker, whatever it takes. And if an issue comes up that forces us to compromise, then we need to rethink scripture. This hurts because it creates this lie that you are the center. You aren't. The third one, it's gonna be a lot of fun. The third one's political. <laughs> You think, what you, or you think what we think or you're out. Theology is shaped by a party. But here's the deal. The gospel doesn't fit in our two-party system. What happens when you are pro-life and care for illegal immigrants? What happens when you ride the capitalist train to make a ton of money and then you give it all away to be called a socialist? When you start following the way of Jesus, both sides will hate you. As probably some of you do right now. (laughs) Where this hurts is it creates this belief that one side is right, that we're enemies. It's us versus them. When Paul said, no, our war is not with flesh and blood, but with the rulers and the powers that are behind these things. Don't forget who the enemy is. This fourth one is emotionalistic, and this one's really dangerous. Because here's the deal. Okay, emotionalistic kind of Christianity is very much prioritized around experience with God. So there are certain things, those certain maybe gifts, signs that will demonstrate that you're a true believer. I was listening to one podcast um, where this girl was at a church, and she was berated By church leadership, berated by them, saying there is something clearly in your life that is keeping you from exercising what God wants you to do. There's some sort of, like, thing that's prohibiting you from being able to speak in tongues or to do these signs or these these gifts. She was confronted and um, abused by them. There's another girl, she's talking about how she's a part of this counseling ministry. Um, in a church where two very unqualified people made her say all of her past trauma to them and say, when you do that, God will now open this door for you to be able to go through, but you have to confide and tell us everything that you've ever done. So hurtful. And this is really where we get this idea of prosperity gospel, where there's some sort of sin in your life that's causing You're suffering. If you sow a seed of faith, money, then you'll be successful. If I prayed in faith, my body would be healed, or my son would be spared, or my marriage would be restored, I would have had a better outcome. And listen, God wants you to pray. Matthew 7, it talks about this persistent asking and knocking, begging God to move, begging God to work. But what happens if I pray and I'm not healed? What happens if suffering actually comes full force at me? There's a biblical example that I want us to explore. It's in Acts 12 where it's talking about so that the context here is is Peter, James, and John. They were the inner circle of Jesus. And James ends up getting killed. So about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. It goes on to say that Peter then was rescued that very night that Herod killed James. And so the question is, is why did James die and not Peter? Did God love Peter more? No, because James was part of the same posse that Peter was. So when we have that framework, it it, it falls apart. We often can't understand God's purpose, but we can be sure for James' life, his death as a martyr was intentional. Living or dying, being spared, being tortured, being delivered, whatever it is, it's not an indicator that you're more worthy or less worthy. God's response to our prayers is not dependent on your worthiness but rather on his mercy. And this hurts because it's, it's so ignorant to how God moves in the world. It speaks for God. It downplays suffering. It creates these followers of Jesus that have no assurance and no love for Christ alone, but only these things that he may give. It's based on how strong of a Christian we are. And it may sound like I'm picking on the overly spiritual crowd. I'm turning to you, all truth, no spirit people, here in a second. I told Jonathan I'm not going to have any friends after this week. <laughs> There's hope in this. The last one's cerebral. And unfortunately, just as much, I think spiritual. Hurting comes from this side as well. Doctrine and knowledge, guys, they are so vital. Don't hear what I'm not saying. They are so vital. Orthodoxy is so vital for the church. But when an overly cerebral faith, where it's problematic, is when right belief doesn't translate to right behavior. There's a disconnect here. I've seen... Listen, I've seen tons of moral failure from high-profile guys in the very emotionalistic or the consumerist, like all of those churches that are like, yeah, those guys are the worst. But I've seen just as many among the guys we would say solid, reformed. Just because you belong to a theological camp, it doesn't make you impervious to sin and impervious to hurting people with the Bible. I see it especially when it comes to kindness and compassion. In verse 18, Paul uses the words puffed up. So he's saying that to say that they're showing, he's exposing this arrogance about these teachers, that they have a lot of knowledge about who God is, but they're so wildly arrogant. He actually calls them fleshly. So the word there where he uses for unspiritual, their minds are unspiritual. It means that actually they're very worldly, ironically, even though they're trying to be more spiritual. He's saying that they have a complete disconnect. Like This is severed between what has been taught up here and the the very lofty things about the knowledge of God, but there is no connection with their heart and love for others. It's created this, almost this irony. And Ben and I were talking about this earlier this week where, you know, I have seen, and we can poke holes. Listen, we can poke holes in all of the philosophies that are in the world. Like Ben talked about this two, three weeks ago, um, where most philosophies that are built on human tradition, listen, they're not going to find their end in Jesus because they weren't built on it. But I will say this. Why is it that people that have no allegiance to God are generally more compassionate? Why is it that there is an angst in their soul towards people that are being hurt and abused when all we're doing is saying, no, that's a wrong theology? And Jesus would say, you have this log in your eye. You have this log that until you pluck that out, you can't deal well with others. You have completely missed the point. And man, he came after these people. So Isaiah 29, 13, these people they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, but their teacher or their teachings are just. Merely human rules. Amos five twenty-one through 24. This is God saying, I hate, I despise your religious festivals, your worship gatherings. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, even though you have really good music, I won't accept them. I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I won't listen to the music of your hearts. But let justice roll on like a river. Let doing right go forth like a never failing stream. Matthew 23, 27. Woe to you, teachers and law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like these whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside you're full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. (laughs) Guys, the reason why we're losing the culture war is we're not leading out with a better vision of what the good life is. That's on us. That's on this log that's protruding out of our face. Jesus was not kind to legalists. See, they had a ton of Bible knowledge, but again, there was no connection And they actually were making it harder for people to come and experience who God was. Almost to the point where they berated people so bad that they wanted nothing to do with God. And that's why Jesus came after them. He said, you are the ones that are opposing God. So how do we not give in to this? How do I not be a hypocrite? Micah 6.8, he's told you, oh human, what is good? What does the Lord require of you? But to do what is right, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. So maybe the things that, maybe there are things you don't know about the world and about people. Maybe it's a little bit more complex than you think. So love kindness and walk. Humbly, How does the world know that your disciples, by what you know, no. Jesus said in John 13, by the love that you have for others. I love how in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 7, generally this is the one that's read um, at weddings, but I feel like it applies here so well. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but don't have love, I'm only a resounding gong. Or a crash symbol. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have faith that I can move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I have to, uh, to the poor and give over my body to hardship, that I may boast, but I, again, I don't have love, I gain nothing. So then, love is patient and it's kind. And it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not proud, it doesn't dishonor others, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it doesn't keep record of wrongs, it doesn't delight in evil, it rejoices in truth, but it always protects and it trusts and it hopes and it perseveres. This is my longest point because I just want to set the backdrop. For what is happening in our world and how on earth we don't embrace this, but flee from it. So Here's a summary. If your theology requires Jesus plus, so signs or gifts or rules or self-empowerment to live life to the fullest, your theology is wrong. If theology gets hit by culture and requires you to reinterpret Scripture to make the Bible and culture be friends, then your theology is wrong. If theology requires an allegiance to a political party or the human kingdom first, then your theology is wrong. If theology gives trite hope to people who are suffering, but actually ends up scarring them rather than lifting their eyes to the true suffering servant, then your theology is wrong. And if your theology does not lead to radical compassion and kindness towards others, even the ones we don't agree with, if it doesn't have humility and listening to understand rather than yelling louder to be understood, then your theology is wrong. Bad theology gets our eyes off of loving Jesus with our everything and others with the same veracity. Veracity. And it puts our eyes on created things rather than the creator. And this is why I think it's so important that verse 19 is after all of this, where he's saying they have lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body is supported and held together by its ligaments. And it grows as God causes it to grow. So my second question, will we stand firm in Jesus? Or will we fall in the wind? Paul connects uh, verse 19 with verse 8 because he's saying the false teachers, they give this hollow and deceptive philosophy, which it depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of the world. And all of their theology and all of their teaching, it's not rooted in Jesus in the kingdom. He would say in 1 Corinthians 12 that it's, it's like this, it's like the body of Christ. He, he gives it as an as a illustration of the body because he's saying if we're not connected to the head, which is Christ, then we're not going to grow. He would get, Jesus would give a similar illustration in John 15. You've already been clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Now remain in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains in the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he's thrown aside like a branch and he withers. And follow this phrase because I'm going to connect it with another passage. They gather them and they are thrown into the fire and they're burned. But my father is glorified by this, that you produce fruits That proved to be my disciples. So that phrase there he connects it back to Matthew 7. In Matthew 7, he said, Be on guard. He's talking about false teachers, false disciples here. Where he says, Be on guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're wolves. You'll recognize them what? By their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? No, in the same way, every good tree produces good fruit. Bad trees produce bad fruit. It's just how it works. But every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire, and you'll recognize them by their fruit. This is very scary what he says next because he's wanting to not just talk about the teaching, the teachers, but that the teaching that Disciples have embodied. In verse 21, he would say, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons, do miracles? Didn't we go to church? Didn't we go to a small group? I shared the gospel once, I gave money to the tithe but then he'll say i never knew you depart from me and i just i want to lovingly press on you a little bit because the people described here they look like christians they did jesus things but here's the difference this was not connected to this You knew a lot of things about God and did some things with God's name, but you didn't give yourself to Jesus. There was something or some things in your life that ultimately that was your Savior. That was your greatest treasure. That thing and Jesus is what gives me life to the fullest. We're not Jesus and people. So what's the hope then? Well, he gives it here. Verse 24, therefore, thank God for this word. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And when the rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and it beat against the house, but it didn't fall because it had this foundation that was built on rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who who built his house on sand. The rain came, the streams rose, the wind blew, and it beat against the house and it fell down. I think it's so interesting that he gives these three illustrations all talking about the same thing. If you're not connected to your brain, your body doesn't go forward. If a fruit is not connected to a tree, you can literally watch it die. Ever tried to build a sandcastle? I have. (laughs) I'm generally terrible at it, but it doesn't last. Is your Christianity contingent on anything other than Jesus? I'm not talking about if you make money or go to counseling or you read a psychology book. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about is your faith contingent on anything else giving you life to, to the fullest? Being liked, being comfortable, being empowered, being happy, being right. If so, then these foundations are like shifting sand. There will always, listen, there will always be a more enticing philosophy. There will always be something that we think is more attractive a cause to give yourself to. Universalism will start sounding pretty good when we don't know what the gospel is. When we don't see how bad our sin actually is to the God who created us, we'll say, how could a God like that be harsh? It's because we've elevated ourselves to a place we don't belong. Jesus said, no, I came to do what you couldn't do because your sin was an affront to me. And so a God of of harshness becomes one of mercy. There will always be cultural pressure to turn away. And Jesus promised this, the world will hate you. It will because of me. If your if Christianity is Jesus plus anything, you're not connected to the head. You aren't abiding in the vine. Your foundation is shaky. But if you're like the wise builder, where he said, no, I, I didn't just I didn't just receive knowledge. I didn't just read scripture and, and abide in it. But then I was like, oh, I got to do this. <laughs> I got to actually put this stuff Into practice, then Jesus said, no, you're like a wise builder, because that's what it is. Only the one who does the will of my Father, he says in Matthew 7, which is what? Love the Lord with your everything. Love people with radical, costly compassion. We did a sermon series on this, so I would encourage you to go back to that. I think it could be helpful for you, but really, the totality of who you are. And everything about you is for the cause of Christ. So this is my final question. Then will we live as if Jesus rules and eternity is real? I love how the beginning of this section, it starts before the therefore In Colossians 2.15, he says that all of the powers and the authorities that are behind all this mess that's feeding you this stuff, Jesus made a spectacle of them. He triumphed over them. The Romans, when they would conquer a king, they would tie them behind this chariot and take them around the city and say, we beat them. It's the same imagery here where he says, no, everything that you thought would make peace with me, I have triumph over it because I am the thing. I am the thing. My life, my death, and my resurrection is alone what saves. And then Paul would say in second, or I'm sorry, Colossians 2, I'm going to say it again. Colossians 2, 20. Since you died with Christ, why do you then still live like you belong to the world? Why do you not look any different? Colossians 3, 1 through 2, and I'm not going to get too much into this because I know Ben's going to do that next week, but Paul would say, since you've died, now set your minds. Set your minds on heaven. Not earthly things, but but the kingdom of God. What does that mean? That means, again, the totality of your life is not untouched by the gospel. As members of a new humanity, no part of human existence remains untouched by the loving and liberating rule of Jesus. Your suffering, your temptation, your moral character, your relationships, they must all be reexamined and transformed in the light of who Jesus is. You've been liberated. So, it's not Jesus and equals life to the fullest. It's Jesus plus nothing equals life to the fullest. Cool, I got time for this. So, I want to do one kind of final illustration. I think that would help kind of bring a lot of this together. So, there's a book called God and Money. And it's written by these two um, Harvard grads. They came to faith, and it, essentially, in coming to faith, it changed everything they thought about money, and I wanted to I wanted to go to this illustration specifically because I think this is one of our major gods in our culture. It's one of the major things that really exposes are we Jesus and type of people. So I'm going to give you three categories, and I'm not going to make this test hard for you. Okay, here are the categories: A, are you a spender? <laughs> B. Are you a saver? Or C, are you a steward? Okay, so let me give you just a couple definitions, and then I'll go to the test. So a spender is people who believe money's greatest value is adding enjoyment today. They spend their money on consumption, seeking maximum enjoyment in the moment. They may have some if they're responsible, but money is primarily about adding pleasure in the moment. So to maximize value today. Savers the opposite. Money's greatest value is providing security for tomorrow. They limit consumption. They focus instead on increasing wealth accumulation. Spenders view money as a tool for pleasure, but savers view money as a tool for security. And the last one is a steward. These people see money as a a gift, a temporary gift that can be used For the purposes of God. Money does provide their needs. They have some fun with it. They save for the future. But they intentionally limit both of those. So they can bless people. Okay? So here's the test. Question one. Which of these excites you more? (laughs) Four-star vacation across Europe. Maxing out all your retirement accounts. Lunch with me and Ben. Where, <laughs> where you would talk about leveraging your resources, these excess resources for the kingdom, the mission of God here at Life Church? You got it? Figure out which one you are? Okay. Number two, when you were a child, what was your first tendency, okay, with new money you received? Was it to buy new toys? And spend it on experiences. Was it to save it in a piggy bank? I had this old, like, Coke bottle. I think I still have it. That's what I would save mine in. Or C, was it to spend or give it on others? Was it to invest in a church or or to charities? Okay, next question. Success. It looks like this. experiencing great food and great travel, living comfortably, driving a good car. B, is it retiring at 50 or 25, as a lot of you (laughs) believe that you can do. C, is it extending payoff of your mortgage? Actually making your mortgage go longer and foregoing some luxury so that you can sponsor a missionary family. Next question, your annual bonus is twice as much as you thought it would be. What's your first thought? I'm heading out shopping, vacation. Or, I'm not extending, I'm making my mortgage shorter. I'm going to put it right to the mortgage. Or your response is, "Thank God for this provision. I can't wait to give a chunk of this away." It's a steward. Last three questions: The spending in my life is effortless. I love it. It's bothersome. I wish I could spend less or it's controlled. I feel good about the way that it's managed. The saving in my life is bothersome. (laughs) It's an inconvenience that gets in the way of having fun, or it's effortless, I love building wealth, or it's purposeful, I have healthy, reasonable goals toward which I'm carefully working, and beyond that, I plan to give excess away. The giving in my life is A, it's obligatory, or B, it's formulaic. Or C, it's joyfully overflowing. I think what Paul is saying here is that you you are not marked by the things of the world anymore. That means that's there's a freedom in That means everything that you are and everything that you do, you're not going to do this perfectly. We're hidden in Christ. But there is just this angst to like, you know, I'm not here that long. The days are evil. I want to leverage my entire life, my talents, my treasures, my temple, all of it for the kingdom of God. And you've been set free to do that. Paul is saying you're not Jesus and people. All this stuff is temporary, so don't live like the world. Put your eyes on the kingdom. Don't buy this health, wealth, no suffering, prosperity gospel. They're vain. You don't need signs or gifts to prove that you're Christ. Christ doesn't fit in your political party. He's asking, are you a part of his kingdom? You will suffer. That doesn't mean Christ has abandoned you or you don't have enough faith. And lastly, in all of your knowledge about God, it must produce love for God and for people. So be free to live radically and generously, compassionately for the cause of Christ. Because the true gospel is worth it. Because a world that has no idea what it is, is so desperate to know how they can finally ex- experience and enjoy life in Jesus.